All right. So thank you so much for coming, Aletha. And um, just like with all my episodes on my podcast, I like to start with this question is, um, in your opinion and experience, what does it mean for design to be delightful? So to me, that um, it means bringing in things that they don't expect, especially when you're coming from a corporate world where enterprises are, I just need to be able to do my job kind of experiences. Um, I like to bring in things that they didn't ask for, things that they didn't expect. And you can do your research and get your user requirements and your feature requirements and build it exactly like they want you to do with your standard patterns. But um, the delight comes when you go beyond that, meeting the, um, to add that extra little something that they weren't expecting. It, but doing that requires paying very close attention to what they aren't saying when you interview them, when you observe what they're doing and where are they struggling that they're not mentioning? What are they not saying? And those are the things that bring in delight. Right. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, being able to show the expectations and just really observing things. Um, Cause I find a lot of times people don't even notice, you know, where they make mistakes or, or um, what they have problems with. So being able to be really observant is pretty awesome. Thank you. Right. Like one example, if you want an example. Um, oh yeah. Is one time I was redesigning a very antiquated system um, and all they were asking for is the ability to be able to shoot out an email to coworkers to notify them of things that were going on with this document that they were all creating and working on together. Mm. But uh, instead of doing that, I designed it to where they could chat within the document creation process instead of shooting out emails all the time and waiting for emails, the chats were in line in context so that they could see all of their comments there and it became a documented part of it. And awesome. that, that was, that brought a lot of delight to them. And the result was that, Hey, I used to hate doing these and put it off, but now I actually enjoy it. And mm -hmm. now I look forward to doing it. So that to me is a successful addition yeah. of delight. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so funny how those like types of collaborative um, experiences are still kind of new on the internet. <laughs> I remember when uh, Google Docs first came out. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Your audio kind of went out. Enterprise. Oh, for enterprise. Yeah. Enterprise where it really, they're, they're very behind. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. That's tragic. <laughs> But that's good that uh, you got to deliver that that level of delight for them. Awesome. All right. The next question is, uh, what do you wish tech execs knew about UX? So executives that may not know much about design or anything like that. Um, what do you, what, what kind of things do you wish they knew about user experience? I wish that they knew the value of UX experience, uh, that it can save money and time on projects. So for example, IEEE did a study on why software fails and three of those top reasons for the projects fail are tied directly back to UX and that such as badly defined requirements, stakeholder politics, and poor communication with customers, the dev team and the target audience. So UX can help with that through user research, stakeholder interviews, usability testing, and the whole UX design process. And then Career Foundry also did a study back in 
on ROI back in 2014. And they found that the input from the UX designer reduces the time spent on the work by up to 50%. And you can reduce development time overall by between 33 and 50%. And it's, you can create, you can have improved decision-making throughout your process and help with prioritizing tasks by including UX in that process. So mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I wish that tech execs would understand. Sadly, the UX design team is one of the first teams always hit during layoffs. <laughs> yeah, goodness. I think a lot if of that in this pandemic. Really they could really understand the value that UX can bring to the table and how much money we could save them by keeping us in that process, then uh, that would really make a big difference. I wish they knew that. And it's especially important when you're doing emerging tech and brand new tech. It's even more important for UX to be involved in that because studies show that people that experience, that have a bad experience with a new technology for the first time are much less likely to go back to that technology in the future, even if you say, hey, we've got a better version now because they've had that bad experience and that happens. I see it all the time with VR, with people getting motion sick on an yeah something it's like i'm never putting on a headset again because i don't want to get sick yeah yeah it's, it's really tragic i've seen that a lot as well um especially because like the level of of progress that we've been you know that we've gotten throughout the years really makes it those types of experiences less less you know um less often so the fact that people may have experienced a really bad you know experience with like a google cardboard or you know any of these um, three off or three degrees of freedom kind of movements that were limited and causing motion sickness, just, right. you know, cuts them away from this amazing experiences they can have with these more immersive uh, headsets today. Yeah. So um, as, as a, as a follow-up question to that, why do you think um, these executives don't often have, don't often see a lot of the value with user, user experience? Well, um, I think part of it is we're not doing a very good job communicating that value to them. Um, there are, if we don't have, like we, including myself, need to take that responsibility to start educating them. Right. It's to get all huffy and complain about, oh, they don't even understand what we do here. But are we doing anything to change that? What are we doing to change that? Do we need to educate ourselves on the value so that we can articulate it well to them. And we need to understand their language. What is it that they care about? Um, they care about the business and they care about money. And there are certain things that they care about that we don't as UX designers, because we care about the people and we see that's very obvious, but that may not right. be. So how's it going to affect their bottom line for better or worse? And so we need to understand that. Right now, odds are that they're just thinking about cost, not return, or they're thinking of return in different ways, not. Right. So we can also conduct stakeholder interviews. Again, mentioning that again, that's a very valuable thing to be able to do with people, um, with your business leadership to get a better understanding of what drives them. What is it that they care about? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's something else. What is it the worst thing that could happen? Uh, asking them what is your worst thing that could happen here and understand that and that 
will help you communicate to that and use UX to communicate to their fears and what's this thing that can happen? How can we help keep that from happening? Right. We also need good design ops. Um, it, if you don't have a well-managed team, well-managed design ops, then that's going to hurt too. That could be costing them more money than you're bringing in if you don't have an effective team. You can do Agile and UX together, and that will cost less money uh, if you do it right. And you can establish design systems to cut down on time for development and design if those design systems include code snippets so that you're not having to retell the developer every time you create a prototype, make the animation do this. If they've already got the code snippet there, they can just grab it and plug it in. Right. There are tons of things you can do, pattern libraries, things like that to communicate interaction design elements to cut down on your time and you not having to spend all that time building prototypes for little micro interactions because it's already there. Mm-hmm. So there are tons of things that you, that as UX professionals, we can do. We need to see the value of those things because those things can really cut down on development time and cost on design time. And it allows the UX designers and research to focus on the more important things, the bigger problems that are making people's lives easier. And that's not just on the target audience's side is also on the business side. So mm-hmm. how we work together with our teammates and so forth, do do UX on the UX process. Right. What, what can we do to make it work better? Right. Awesome. Yeah, that was a really great and in-depth answer that actually goes into, you know, um, basically answers the, the other question I had about how can we be better um, professionals and teammates, especially at, you know, agile tech companies. Um, is there anything else that you want to add there? So you mentioned things like pattern libraries and metrics based and everything like that. Any other things that you would add into how we can be better teammates? Yeah, be humble. Don't think you know everything. And remember that there's not one solution to any given problem. You can, you might think that your solution is the best. I've been guilty of that in the past, but it, maybe it's not. And maybe it's not the only solution. Maybe there are lots of other good solutions. Um, you can get a, you can also get amazing ideas from people who don't think the same way as you do. So tap into those, even if it's not a designer, it could be anyone. Um, they, anyone can have great ideas. So tap into those ideas and work with the developers. Um, if they're not, if you're not getting the reception that you need from them, start again with the education side of it. I have met with developers when I've been on a new team, I've been a UX team of one on a team before and, I sat down with developers because I was pretty sure they hadn't worked with UX people before. And mm-hmm. I said, well, this is what I do. These are the kind of deliverables I create. This is how I work with developers. What do you need? What outcomes do you need? What kinds of deliverables, deliverables do you need to get the work done? Because that made me start working completely differently than I had always done in the past. I'd always right. just get the same process. Here are your wireframes. Here are your specs. Here's a prototype but not all developers are the same and not all developers need that same in-depth um, documentation for everything. So know your developers, know how they work, know what works for them and you'll get better collaboration. And some, awesome. some developers have a very good eye for visual and don't need all of that stuff. They can see right away. Oh, that's a pixel off. I'm going to fix that. Uh, <laughs> those are awesome developers. <laughs> that work with. 
<laughs> Definitely. That, that's that, thank you again for that um, in-depth answer. I love it. Love it. All right. So the next question is, um, how do you design for emerging technology? So I get lots of inspiration myself from sci-fi interfaces. They're um, great studies on to test your design chops on to see if you can get past that cool factor uh, to the actual heart of the design challenge that you're looking at and the solution that they've come up with. So that's one of the reasons all right, I haven't done it in a while. I'm working on another one that hasn't been published yet. That um, That's why I analyze the interfaces in sci-fi is that, is it solving a problem? Is it causing more problem than solution? Is it just really cool for a cinematic effect? Is it part of a trend that you don't want to miss out on? These are all good things to test your design chops to see uh, whether or not mm -hmm. emergent technology that you're trying to come with is something that will actually solve a problem. And Chris Nossel and Nathan Shedroff wrote a really good book called Make It So, which is about sci-fi interfaces. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a website that I that I've written for in the past and that very, very slowly writing for in the future, <laughs> sci-fi interfaces.com. So I recommend checking that out, but it's more than any other technology. Emerging tech really needs a lot more research with your users to make sure that you're solving the right problem before you spend a lot of money developing the tech that no one's going to use. Right, right. To know your target audience and what they find important and what are their demographics? What are they going to, are they going to even be able to afford it? Because mm -hmm. there is a large economic gap. We've learned more about it during COVID, but there are some people who really have a tech gap and can't afford this thing. Is this thing going to help them if they're the people you're trying to help? Are yeah. they helps. Uh, so you've got to really know that. You've got to know what, you want to build and if you already know what you want to build do research to validate it with ethnographic studies field observations contextual interviews use all your mix of methods and if you're not sure what method to use uh, luma institute l-u-m-a institute has resources that can help you figure that out and i also has a tool designkit.org that can also help you figure out what research methods to use depending on what it is that you're trying to figure out awesome absolutely amazing resources there thank you definitely put those in the show notes um so i have some follow-up questions with that as well so the first part is um what what are some of your favorite and worse you know sci-fi interfaces when you look at you know many of the ones that you analyze what are some really good ones or really bad ones it's my favorite favorite show to analyze that is the one I'm very, very slowly working on. It is a gold line of technology is Psychopass. It's an anime. Mm. I'm only working on season one and season one alone has this gold mine of technology. It handles AI. They've got an AI that is how society is run. It's mm. not a government. It's an AI. And so what does that mean? What are the ethics behind that? What is the effect that this is having on people? Mm. And it goes in depth into that. So that's my very favorite one to study. Um, and 
one of the worst experiences that I've seen. It's like two seconds long and it's in um, Spider-Man. I don't remember which one, but it was, I think it was the amazing Spider-Man. I don't know, but it's like two seconds long and it's this touch screen emergency lever. So touch screen emergency lever? Touch screen, touch screen emergency lever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in Oscar and Gwen, that's her name, right? Gwen is going to pull this emergency lever to tell everyone uh, to escape because there's an, there's an attack going on at Oscorp. And so, yeah, fortunately she's level-headed. She can go, she has to four finger swipe this emergency lever to activate <laughs> it. And first of all, why would it be touchscreen? Why not a manual emergency lever? Yeah. It's something that that's, that's that emergency related. What if she was disabled? What if she couldn't use her hands? What if mm -hmm. she was injured and couldn't use a gesture? It's like yeah. you your elbow to, to push down a manual lever, but you can't do that with the, you have to have a four finger swipe for this digital emergency lever. So just because yeah. it's cool doesn't mean it's <laughs> the right decision. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. That's, I see that a lot. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> People want to use screens for everything, goodness. One thing that um that is kind of really bothers me is that in a lot of sci-fi, you see a lot of like transparent interfaces. Mm -hmm. So it's like a phone, like in the Expanse, they have phones that are like transparent for some reason. And you can, it's basically a touchscreen phone, but it's all transparent. And same thing for a lot of, a lot of, a lot of computer interfaces. So as we go into like this, this age of like augmented reality and, you know, um, extended reality and stuff like that, what do you think about transparent interfaces? <laughs> you are going to have to make sure that there is enough contrast so that you can actually see what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, they're often used in film for cinematic effect and to help the audience see what's going on with the interaction without having to look over someone's shoulder. Mm -hmm. But when you're getting into AI or, or AR, <laughs> all the acronyms, um, and when you're getting into AR, you need to make sure that there is enough of a contrast with the interface and the real environment that you can actually see what's going on. Otherwise, it's going to mm -hmm. be really difficult to use, especially when you get into accessibility issues with people with lower vision or the older population has more difficulty with contrast than the younger population. So you're going you're gonna to really need to make sure that that is tested so that it's the visibility is good and visibility and legibility on those things is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it, it definitely does look cinematic and I guess it does make sense for a movie, but I, I, I just worry because I, I actually see people trying to develop these sorts of transparent devices, you know, <laughs> and uh, today in real life. So it's just something we should, I think, look at. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the benefits of, Studying sci-fi interfaces, Chris Nossel actually wrote an article about it. The eight, I think it's eight reasons why you should study sci-fi interfaces. And it talks about it, you're learning from their mistakes. It's a gold mine for good ideas. And it 
he did this talk called Gorgeously Catastrophic, I think, Gorgeous Catastrophic, something like that. And it's looking at all of these interfaces that if they were designed in real life, they would be catastrophic. <laughs> like like Iron Man's HUD. Oh, okay. Um, and he, that's one of his examples. And yes, it's really cool to have that head display, but if you're flying at so many thousands of miles per second and you've suddenly got this UI that's popping into your head and you're armed with all of these missiles, what is your reaction going to be when this thing is suddenly flying at your face? It's a UI interface, but your fight or flight reflexes are going to have a different response than you think they would. Right, right. That is huge. <laughs> <laughs> going to shoot a missile at a ferris wheel or <laughs> yeah goodness up from over there or what what's gonna happen so that's a great point yeah <laughs> i'll definitely check those out i love look, thinking about and looking at sci-fi interfaces but i haven't really delved um deep into it so thank you thank you for sharing mm -hmm. um i had another follow-up question um when you said when you said uh, a lot of these emerging technologies aren't really affordable and so it's hard for people to you know you might not be able to solve the problems that you were expecting. So in terms of when we're designing for emerging technology, what are there any you know tips or um, advice as to how we can kind of bridge the gap between affordability and still be able to use this cutting edge technology? That is a bigger question that I'm not <laughs> going to have an answer for, but it's gonna take people working together people with the various expertises working together to come up with that solution mm -hmm. and to yeah. actually talk to the people that you want to help and yeah. get them lost. And what is it that they really need? Uh, but yeah, that's a bigger question than I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I just had to ask it cause it's just an, it's an interesting thing that, that has been, you know, something I've dealt with a lot in my life. So, um, yeah, that's something I might have to include in future episodes for people to think about because <laughs> I would love to see what people have to say about that. Yeah, yeah I'll be thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, so next question here I have is um, when you are hiring you know, other UX professionals, whether entry-level otherwise, um, what are the types of things you're looking for, especially if they're designing for emerging technology? So again, humility and the willingness to learn and to adapt. I care more about your attitude than your portfolio, mm -hmm. especially if you're new or if you're transitioning. So colleges and boot camps um, don't give you the experience that you really need. So it's not fair for companies to expect someone right out of college or right out of a boot camp to be able to hit the ground running. So. Right less concerned about that than I am about your willingness to take constructive feedback, to grow, and to have a good attitude. And so my advice for entry-level people would be to, I know it's difficult, uh, to look for a mature team that's willing to train you up, look for mentors to help you. It's your chance to interview the company as well. So make sure that there are people on the team that you could see yourself wanting to learn from ask them their processes, how they work for a team to see if they know what they're doing or if it seems like it's an unhealthy environment even, you don't wanna go into that. 
if it's an unhealthy environment or if you see red flags, you do have the right to say no. Um, and that's important for you as well. I know, I know from my generation, I don't know about the newer generations, I'm older, but we were taught to like really kiss up to people and say, oh, I would love to do that. But would you really? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> good for, and you end up in a job that you hate and you don't want that. Cause life's too short to life's too short to be in a toxic environment uh, and into a, in a place where you can't really make a difference. So it's good. You have the right to say no to, but interview the people that you are being interviewed by. And, and so what's going to impress me in an interview is usually what they teach you. And it's, Usually what they teach you in school about how to do a proper interview is I'm not sure if that's what they teach now, but I want you to turn on your interview skills and ask me questions just as tough as the ones that I'm asking you. Mm, right. Put me on the spot too. Um, and that will tell me a whole lot more about even the cliche interviews that the most companies do in their right what's your weakness or <laughs> I, turn the, turn the questions on me and ask me difficult questions, not the cliche questions, but it's like, what is my process? What is it that, how do I work? How I'm going to turn those. I want you to turn those questions around on me too. Right. Right. That's awesome. Um, I do have to ask, uh, what is, what are some questions that we can ask as entry level people to be able to see, you know, what might be a toxic environment? Because I find that it might be difficult to know, you know, what are some of those red flags? It would be difficult. Um, you can watch body language and see how people are treating each other in your meetings. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one if you're new. It's something that I had to learn over a long time. Mm. But you can usually see red flags for people's attitudes. Um, how are they talking to each other? Is there, does there seem to be some kind of strange hierarchy? Is everyone treating each other equally? Do they have to, I know one person that interviewed for a team that recently she impressed me because she, she called each of us individually and she didn't have to do that. Um, she took her time to call each of us individually. She reached out to us on LinkedIn, knew that we were going to be on the team she was going to be on and had a phone call with us and asked us, well, what do you, how do you like the company? I care about the culture. What's the culture like? And she actually asked, it's mm. like, and I was honest with her. Um, and I mean, are you brave enough to do that? She told me later, it's like, she got hired. <laughs> but yeah. I was like, I don't know if I would have done that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. That seems scary. Like, <laughs> yeah. But if they're a really good team, they, they might appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So are you brave enough <laughs> to reach out to people if you know who they are, if you know they're going to be on your team? Are you brave enough to reach out to them and ask them candid questions? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
And are there any other uh, specific like candid questions that you ask or you think are important to, to ask? Um, well, I ask about processes because that tells me whether or not they use reasonable process. Um, if they're working together with the developers, if they complain about developers during the interview process, that tells you they're not working well with their developers. Um, I'm watching for things they're not saying. Right. Again, that comes with experience. Um, so it's hard. It's hard to tell someone. It's always a hard thing to do is to tell someone advice that you <laughs> you learn over years over, over your whole life. Yeah. And it clicks until it does, and it's like oh, but then <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Well, that's some good starting point so far is like looking for culture, you know, going out to ask, um, just ask people, you know, what it's like working there, um, not being afraid to turn the, turn the questions around and, and really dive into, you know, their processes and, uh, and see how they answer. That's, that's, I think that's a good starting point, at least. So uh, thank you once again. And um, finally, we have our last question. And uh, take this however you want. But how do you invent magic? So I think that magic is in the details and it takes time and effort to do it. So, and I would also say that there's different types of magic. So one type is like what you get with Pixar films or in the case of VR, Oculus, Oculus First Contact is a good example. They're a little onboarding experience that you get for free with the oculus um it because it includes all of these human behaviors these nonverbal communications you're they knew their target audience for first contact oculus it was for a certain age group um a little bit older geeks so they knew their target audience really well so they added elements in first contact of all of this nostalgia. So they had old tech from an 80s line around, all of these old cartridges, VCRs, things like that, that you don't see anymore. They had robots that reminded them of the movies from the 80s. And so it really brought about this magical experience for this specific target audience that I'm in that is like, oh, I love this. I could spend all day in here talking to this robot. Um, so that to me is magical. Um, to really study your target audience and know what the ability to bring about that nostalgia and that element of that's what I call magic and like with Pixar where they really understand humans the human behavior even if it's not a human that they're portraying in their film that mm -hmm. is a really human emotion like inside out for example like, yeah that's magical to me and that's huge and BOGO is this other experience that is for free on the Oculus Quest. I don't know if it's available anywhere else, but it's this little salamander-like creature that is has dog behaviors. Absolutely acts like a dog. And <laughs> including the guilt trip when you're leaving the app. So <laughs> wow. if you ever had to leave the pet at home, that guilt trip that they give you is included. <laughs> <laughs> That is crazy. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's thanks for sharing that. Yeah. That's nice. So that's, that's awesome. I love that, 
that um, idea of magic, you know, going into really knowing your audience and, and playing on, you know, what they enjoy, whether that's nostal nostalgia or just things from their life. So um, I love that. Thank you. And uh, before we close out, is there anything else that you would like to add or say? I really appreciate you reaching out to me for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I, um, I've, I've read, I started reading your blogs um, a couple months ago, and uh, you've had just one, one um, awesome things after another, you know, reading through those blogs, and I've learned a lot, and it inspired me to, you know, start my own um, kind of uh, ideas of how we can build better experiences based on my own experience at working at an arcade, so thank you so much for your, for your writing and uh, for everything that you're doing as well. Yeah, and thanks for reading my blog and appreciating it. I, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate getting feedback from people too. So if there's any kind of additional things that you think would be useful, let me know. I'm open to feedback on that as well because um, I'm not even halfway through with the best practices that I'm writing on there. I've got them all printed out here that I have to... Um, Put them all in web form so everyone else can read them but. that's amazing yeah yeah i definitely will um looking forward to all the the rest of those best practices and thanks again so very much for doing this podcast and uh yeah thanks for building a more delightful future <laughs> thank you for having